0: Section 14 of Woman and the Republic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Henry. Woman and the Republic by Helen Johnson. CHAPTER Six Woman Suffrage and the Trades the fifth count in the suffrage declaration of sentiments reads as follows he has monopolized nearly all the profitable employments and from those she is permitted to follow she receives but scanty remuneration the women who wrote that in eighteen forty eight in common with the majority of american women were presumably being well provided for in their own homes by men whose boast it was that their wives and daughters did not need or care to seek employment elsewhere. It is true that, at that time, because of this supposed advantage as married women, they could not have engaged in separate business that would involve the making of contracts or distinct bargain and sale. To the world, the husband was the wife's financial manager but at that time the wife could enter any of the employments as a paid clerk or worker this count seems more surprising in view of the fact that writing only three years later to a suffrage convention that met in akron ohio mrs stanton said the trades and professions are all open to us let us quietly enter and make ourselves if not rich and famous at least independent and respectable two years later still colonel thomas w higginson wrote to another suffrage convention that met in akron ohio we complain of the industrial disadvantages of women and indicate at the same time their capacities for a greater variety of pursuits why not obtain a statement on as large a scale as possible first of what women are doing now commercially and mechanically throughout the union and secondly of the embarrassments which they meet the inequality of their wages and all the other peculiarities of their position this would have been most valuable and interesting and it would seem that something of the kind should have preceded the sweeping accusation made in the declaration but there appears in their history no evidence of its having been done in eighteen fifty nine caroline h ball said in addressing a suffrage convention I honor women who act. That is the reason I greet so gladly girls like Harriet Hosmer, Louisa Lander, and Margaret Foley. Whatever they do or do not do for art, they do a great deal for the cause of labor. I do not believe anyone in this room has an idea of the avenues that are open to women already. Then follows a list of the trades then pursued by women in Great Britain. Of the United States, she said, Of factory operatives in 1845, there were 55,828 men and 75,710 women. Women are glue makers, glove makers, workers in gold and silver leaf, hair weavers, hat and cap makers, hose weavers, workers in India rubber, paper hangers, physicians, picklers and preservers, Saddlers and harness makers, shoemakers, soda room keepers, snuff and cigar makers, stock and suspender makers, truss makers, typers and stereotypers, umbrella makers, upholsterers, card makers, photographers, house and sign painters, fruit hawkers, button makers, tobacco packers, paper box makers, embroiderers, and fur sewers. She added, IN NEW HAVEN SEVEN WOMEN WORK WITH SEVENTY MEN IN A CLOCK FACTORY, AT HALF WAGES. AND IN SUMMING UP SHE SAID, THE GREAT EVILS THAT LIE AT THE FOUNDATION OF DEPRESSED WAGES ARE THAT WANT OF RESPECT FOR LABOR WHICH PREVENTS LADIES FROM ENGAGING IN IT, AND THAT WANT OF RESPECT FOR WOMEN WHICH PREVENTS MEN FROM VALUING PROPERLY THE WORK THEY DO, make women equal with men before the law and wages will adjust themselves women are equal with men legally and wages have not adjusted themselves and the law has had no control over the feelings and opinions of men and women those who were large-minded enough to respect labor asked no warrant from legislation and those who were small-minded enough to undervalue women's work because it was women's do so still despite the statutes and would if women voted at every election men were equal with each other before the law but that did not compel the respect of foolish men nor did their wages adjust themselves to equality on that account if there were more men working in a trade in a given place than the demand for their products required the wage would fall and so it must with women But reasons entered into the market value of woman's work that did not enter into that of men. Mrs. Dole mentions but one trade in which the wages were lower for women, and there they competed with men. Those seven women working with the seventy men in New Haven were not expected to be called upon to support a family by their earnings. If they were girls, in the natural course of things, they were expected to leave the work whenever they were ready to marry. If one of them married one of the seventy men, the firm of employers would lose her services entirely, but the man who married her would be depended upon to work more steadily than before, and he would also have more incentive to do better work in order to command still higher wages. The long cry of suffrage has not been able to bring about equal pay for equal work, even where legislation to that effect has been introduced into trades unions and state laws this has still rested and must rest with the employer and his action must be governed by quality and demand and supply the attempt to secure equal wages among men has resulted in bringing down the wages of all to the point of the poorer workers the general laws of trade like those of government are based on principles of universal equity, and however strenuously temporary deviations may be pressed, they return at last to the natural position. This is not saying that there is not great injustice towards labour by capital, and towards capital by labour, but that the foundation principles tend to govern the mutual relations, and forcing that is contrary to these cannot be permanently successful. If the work of women for any reason is unequal, the wages will be, and the mere fact that some particular women work for some particular time, the same number of hours, and as well as do the men in the same establishment, does not do away with the fact that women's work in general is not as steady as men's, and is not expected to meet the same emergency of family support, no one can believe more fully than i in equal wages for work that is really equal but it seems to me that private contract and not public action must regulate the matter of special wage government reports show that the average age of the working girl in this country is but twenty-two years and that after twenty the number falls off rapidly unskilled labor must forever take the place of that which is withdrawn which is another and most valid reason for lower wages that lower wages are the result of natural causes and not of unnatural feeling is shown in many ways woman teachers at the west where teachers were needed received as good pay as did men in new york i heard superintendent jasper i think it was say i am in favour of equal pay for equal work for the two sexes but we cannot give it here we can get twice as many good women teachers as men teachers and when we need men we must pay at a higher rate this does not extend to the highest grade of teachers superintendents and professors in colleges where men compete with one another there the compensation is the same for equal work in the highest forms of work women compete on equal terms In literature, women are paid, for books or articles, the same prices that men receive. In art, this is true. It is the picture or statue or musical ability that counts. Singers receive as much for the soprano as for the tenor voice. Actresses are paid according to drawing power, and woman dancers and acrobats, alas, command the highest price. There is, among others, this fundamental difference between the business life of men and women. For men who pursue occupations outside the home, there are women to manage that home. For women who pursue occupations outside the home, there are not men, but other women to manage the home. The final domestic care of the world must come upon women. The final attention to social life must come upon women in behalf of the women who are constrained, or who choose to sacrifice their share in this part of the world's necessary work, some other women must do double duty. That this rule has seeming exceptions does not make it less the universal rule. Nothing, not even industrial emancipation, is gotten for nothing. When the count cited above from the suffrage indictment was written, the factory system had been established in this country twenty-six years. From the revolution down to 1822 the women of the land had been busy in the homes making the household and personal wear. sixteen years after the introduction of machinery into lowell massachusetts twelve thousand five hundred seven operatives were at work there the majority of whom were women american women and girls new york state also had its mills fanny forrester afterward mrs justin worked in a mill near her home in that state she went there as did hosts of new england girls lucy larcombe and harriet robinson among the number to relieve the home but especially to gain the means of education for themselves and for their brothers and sisters the towns afforded better libraries and there were evening classes that they could attend things not to be had in the farming districts in eighteen fifty In 25 states, the factory census reported 32,295 men and 62,661 women workers. In 1860, there were 46,859 men and 75,169 women. Hosiery machinery at this time was giving employment to three times as many women as men but the emigrant and not the american man had been the means of turning out the native woman worker it was the foreign born woman who worked for unequal pay in eighteen forty six the sewing machine had been invented previous to that time sixty one thousand five hundred women were employed making boys clothing by hand for the market which was twice the number of men so employed while the woman tailor was as familiar a figure as the dressmaker in every village where she went from house to house in eighteen sixty one came our civil war with its awful sacrifice of young men with that also came the heavy money loss and consequent inability of many men even where life and limb had been spared to support their families in the homes that great conflict with its stern necessities, its lessons of mutual helpfulness, its military discipline, which taught the value of organization, did more than could ten thousand conventions, even had they been working with knowledge and system, to instruct women in love for work for others. It nerved them to labor for self-support, and for the support of those who were now dependent upon them, because the strong arm had fallen and the willing heart had ceased to beat. Before the year 1861 had closed, there were a million women in this country earning their daily bread by honorable labor. As time went on and the slaughter continued, and the nation's debt piled up and prices became almost fabulous, more and more women asked through blinding tears what can i do every trade was thrown open to women and the laws had placed the married woman where she could compete on equal terms with her unmarried sister even though she still had the advantage of a husband's support a great pother has lately been made by suffrage workers in new york because a bill was proposed prohibiting married women from teaching in the public schools this has been the unwritten law in many places for years the practice was adopted to offset the maintenance of married women teachers should receive more pay but so should poets and artists and we all hope the time will come when brain work will have more tangible market value the sewing machine had thrown women out of employment, as with it one woman could do the work of many. The number of work seekers was enlarged by the influx from the desolated South of women whose entire living had been swept away. This army of uneducated workers from all sections were compelled not only to compete with men, but with themselves as well. They sought and could seek only the lighter employments suffragists had their wish in regard to man's relinquishment of the profitable employments but not in the way they intended the women for whose sake those profitable employments had been monopolized were now not only allowed by law but compelled by circumstance to toil from sun to sun at the best they could find to do their frailer organizations were forced to bear the double curse of work and pain a nobler army of martyrs never turned their sorrows into blessings by the spirit in which they met them than the american women who put their shoulders to the wheels of business that were moving in a hundred ways in eighteen forty three a humble beginning at industrial education for girls had been made by the female guardian society in eighteen fifty four peter cooper established the cooper union with its generous facilities for women in industry and the arts the young women's christian association was founded in normal illinois in eighteen seventy two and its work in the industrial branch spread before many years to every city and town in the land men originated for women the first woman's protective union in twenty five years it had reported legal suits won for twelve thousand women and forty one thousand dollars collected in eighteen sixty nine the great organization of the knights of labor was founded and in its body of rules was one to secure for both sexes equal pay for equal work failure proves that labor cannot any more than paper be coined into money by the mere fiat of a government or an organization but the great impulse to industrial education came through the centennial exposition held at philadelphia in eighteen seventy six while the land was filled with the hum of preparation as their contribution to that indication of peaceful progress the suffrage associations were rolling up another petition in which to set forth their wrongs after general hawley manager of the exposition had courteously refused to receive it in a public meeting it was pressed upon the nation's heart by delegates who pushed their way into independence hall outside that historic building under the broiling sun with matilda Joslyn gage to hold an umbrella over her miss anthony read aloud a declaration of independence that re-echoed the sentiments of their first declaration it began by saying while the nation is buoyant with patriotism and all hearts are attuned to praise it is with sorrow we come to strike the one discordant note a typical and prophetic sentence from eighteen seventy six girls as well as boys received manual training in the public schools and when that proved impracticable the way was found to open industrial schools that should include classes for girls. Every state, and almost every city and town of any size, had them. It was not long ere multitudes of societies and organizations furnished means for women's education in business and mechanical arts. The growth of the philanthropy of self-help is one of the wonders of the past twenty-five years, and women, without the ballot have largely assisted in developing it. John Graham Brooks, in a lecture delivered in New York in the winter of 1895-6 on some economic aspects of the woman question, said, Woman who used to do her work in the house now does it in the factory, and the same work doing her work under absolutely new and different conditions a change so great that it closes finally one argument that i hear again and again by those opposed to woman suffrage namely that the place for woman is in the home one condition under which she works that is not absolutely new and different is that of sex Whatever, as a woman, she could not do in the home, she cannot do abroad as a working woman. She is in business as a business woman, not as a business man. Economic equality in such things as she can do is as unlike to a similarity in work which ignores sex conditions as a business corporation is to the government under whose laws it exists and by which its rights are defended but even the external conditions are not so changed as might at first appear. The statistical proof of the youth of the majority of workers, the comparatively small number out of the whole population who go into business, and the fact that the domestic work for these very workers must be done by women all show this. The United States Census of 1890 shows that not quite four million women are engaged in gainful occupations of these more than one and a half million are in domestic service and nearly half a million in professional service mainly as teachers the most striking gain has been made in the lighter forms of profitable labor by stenographers typewriters telegraph and telephone operators cashiers bookkeepers etc In 1870, there were 19,828 of these. In 1890, there were 228,421. The invention of the typewriting machine appears to be the ballot that has mainly produced this result. Carol D. Wright says that in 20 cities examined in the United States, he found among 17,000 working women, that 15,887 were single, 1,038 were widows, and 745 were married. This tells the same story. The mass of these women, like the mass of men, are working, not for public influence or station, but for the owning and holding of a home, the latest effort in self-help for the working class is the wise one of building them good homes the best renting property has been found to be that which gives privacy and those distinctions that mark the family the latest report of the new york bureau of statistics and labor shows that of eight thousand forty persons who registered for employment in new york city 6,458 were men and 1,582 were women. Of these, the foreign-born numbered 4,804, of whom 3,674 were men and 1,140 were women. The native-born numbered 3,234, of whom 2,796 were men and 442 were women the list included every trade and profession from that of day-labourer to that of clergyman from that of school-teacher to that of domestic servant and showed that in the city where more women are employed than in any other place the proportion of women to men was less than one-fifth and of native american to foreign-born women two-fifths mr brooks would favour suffrage because In this new career, there are reasons for every whit of protection. He mentions as proof of woman's changed attitude as an industrial unit that the Supreme Courts of Illinois and California have decided against special legislation for women. They did so on the ground that they were now earning their livelihood under men's conditions and should not have special legislation in business relations. If Mr. Brooks thinks that women wish the ballot to restore the special legislation, he does not know the suffrage demand for equality. In England, when the laws were under discussion that forbid the employment of women more than a certain number of hours, and of children under certain ages, the woman suffrage leaders protested against the former as an infringement of personal rights and the ability to make contracts but the special legislation for business women goes on because after all the state knows that they are business women and not business men and the suffrage quarrel in regard to privilege versus right goes on also before the committee of the constitutional convention mrs ecob of albany said you speak of chivalry we scorn the word what has your chivalry done for the weaker sex "'Women are the unpaid laborers of the world, outcasts in government.'" Mrs. Hood of Brooklyn on the same occasion said, "'Who dares insult our American madhood by declaring that men will be less courteous to mother, wife, and sister because they are political equals? Women's equality in the industrial world has today produced a nobler, better chivalry than was ever conceived by the knights of old these two suffrage leaders will have to settle between themselves the question which they have placed in dispute it serves to point the moral of the dilemma that attends an attempted adjustment of unnatural claims meantime government is caring for the weak and chivalry is doing justice The labor law that went into effect in this state on September 1st provided that children be classified so that those under 14 years should not be employed in mercantile pursuits. Children between the ages of 12 and 14 will be permitted to work in vacation if they can show that they have attended school through the year. The girls between 14 and 21 are not to be allowed to work more than 10 hours a day their employment before seven a m and after ten p m is forbidden women and children are not allowed to work in basements without permits from the health board as to the condition of the basement seats are to be provided for women employees forty-five minutes given them for luncheon and proper luncheon and toilet rooms to be secured penalties ranging from a fine of twenty dollars for the first offence to imprisonment are prescribed for violation of the law in his last report published in january eighteen ninety seven the new york commissioner of labor considers the low wages and petty wrongs of working women and girls in new york city he advises the formation of unions among themselves for their better protection mr brooks does not agree with those who claim that possession of the ballot would raise wages Mrs. Ames and Dr. Jacoby think it would only raise them through the indirect influence of the greater respect in which the worker would be held. This is safe ground again because it is debatable, but the domestic servants of those who hold the former opinion might give them an object lesson. Unfranchised as the servants are, they have only to make a threat of leaving to secure better wages. Harriet A. Keyser who was the special suffrage champion of the working woman before the committee of the Constitutional Convention, gave not one fact or figure to show that the working woman, where she had the ballot, had already been helped by it, or that it was likely to help her, or how and why it might help her. Among the generalities she uttered was the following— But the greatest value of the working woman, to my mind, is that without her economic value this present demand for equal suffrage could never be made. Indeed, the suffrage of the world is due to her. Do I mean by this that every working woman in the country sees her own value so clearly that she demands enfranchisement? I could not say this with truth. I make this statement irrespective of what any individual working woman may think it is based upon what she is as through the last half century the contention for equal rights has continued the working woman has been the great object lesson it was not from women of leisure having all the rights they want that inspiration has been received it has been caught from the patient worker healing the sick writing the book painting the picture teaching the children tilling the soil working in the factory serving in the household every stroke of these workers has been a protest against a disenfranchised individuality miss Keyser has mentioned most of the classes in this country for so far as my experience goes there is no such thing as a leisure class in the sense of an idle class of women women are almost universally industrious and it is a mistake to suppose that their early industry in the house was not as much appreciated and counted in the general fund of work as their more public activity now it is well for miss Keyser to make her estimate of the suffrage value of the working-woman one that shall have no reference to the expressed views of the working-woman herself because the working woman seems almost universally not only unconscious of, but indifferent to her attitude as a great object lesson in favor of the ballot. But here is something new. Suffragists have first claimed that there could be no working woman unless there was a ballot in woman's hand. Then they claimed that, although there was a working woman, despite the fact that she had not been enfranchised, she was made by the agitation for the ballot, and now comes Ms. Keeser to say that not only is the working woman not due to the ballot, or to ballot-seeking, but the suffrage of the world is due to her, for without her economic value this present demand for equal suffrage could never have been made. Tar-baby ain't saying nothing." Dr. Jacoby, in Common Sense, says, Whatever may be the personal privileges of their lot, whatever the legal protection accorded to their earnings, the public status of such a class remains strictly that of aliens. At the present moment, this vast and constantly growing army of women industrials constitutes an alien class. The privation for that class of political right to defend its interests is only masked but not compensated by its numerous interrelations with those who have rights. So they are conceded to have personal privileges and legal protection for earnings. The alienism is then purely political and works no hardship but what suffragists conceive to be in the mental attitude of the worker. Foreign capitalists who own land or plant in the United States are unfranchised. We have large numbers of men working in trades and professions who never have been naturalized, but we do not dream that all these constitute an alien class of industrials. No distinction is made in business opportunity between the voter and non-voter. Neither is any social distinction made regarding worker or employer on account of the relations of either to the ballot. Market value is not measured by suffrage, except in dishonorable transactions, and the women with ballots in their hands are not the government's preferred creditors. The men in the District of Columbia are not conscious of lower wages and industrial ostracism. Again, Dr. Jacoby says the share of women in political rights and life imperfect and deferred during the predominance of militarism has become natural has become inevitable with the advent of industrialism in which they so largely share industrialism has no more power to change the basis of government than the abolition movement had when certain advocates of it shouted that it was sinful to vote or hold office because the government was founded upon physical force and maintained itself by muskets industrialism is bringing into this country some of the gravest problems it has ever met the sympathy of the people is on the side of labour that uses honourable means but cleveland and leadville are among the places that suggest afresh the fact that industrialism must be kept in order for its own sake, for the sake of general peace, and for the sake of its increasing ranks of alien women who look to it for every whit of protection, save that which their own self-respect and that of public opinion can win them. Again, Dr. Jacoby says notwithstanding the repression of women's civil rights and their absolute exclusion from even the dream of a political sphere the women of france engage more freely than anywhere else in business and industry there is a moral here deeper than can be read at a glance the first thought suggested is that industrial success for women is not in the least dependent upon the vote The second is that industrial progress does not command the vote. The third is that American freedom has worked in the opposite direction from French unstable republicanism. And the fourth is that industrious France stands appalled at the lack of increase of its population. There are many forces that sap its national life, but perhaps the most conspicuous, is the socialistic and anarchistic tendency of its labor organizations. The woman suffrage idea was first openly proclaimed during the French Revolution. In 1851, the annual suffrage convention in this country was called by Paulina Wright Davis to meet in Worcester, Massachusetts. Ernestine Rose, read to the convention two letters addressed to that body through her, written by Jean Duvois and Pauline Rowland from a Paris prison. During the revolutionary movements of 1848, these women had played conspicuous roles. One of them had attempted to nominate the mayor in her native city, the other to be a candidate for the legislative assembly. They wrote, sisters of america your socialist sisters of france are united with you in the vindication of the right of woman to civil and political equality we have moreover the profound conviction that only by the power of association based on solidarity by the union of the working classes of both sexes in organized labor can be acquired completely and pacifically the civil and political equality of woman and the social right for all i know the feud and the grounds for it between socialism and anarchy but both are enemies of the social order and both are favourers of woman suffrage how pacifically the labor movement that originated in France in 1848 and spread throughout Europe was likely to proceed, we may judge, by its constant outbreaks, kindred to the recent bomb-throwing in Paris. In the German Working Man's Union, hassenklever for many years the leading socialist in the German Reichstag, said, THE WOMAN QUESTION WOULD BE TAKEN BY THE DEVELOPED, OR MORE CORRECTLY SPEAKING, THE COMMUNISTIC STATE, UNDER ITS OWN CONTROL, FOR IN THIS STATE, WHICH WAS TO CONSIST OF MEN AND WOMEN WITH EQUAL VOTE, WHEN THE COMMUNITY BEARS THE OBLIGATION OF MAINTAINING THE CHILDREN AND NO PRIVATE CAPITAL EXISTS, THE WOMAN NEED NO LONGER BE CHAINED TO ONE MAN. The bond between the sexes will be merely a moral one and if the characters do not harmonize could be dissolved. The social democrat of Copenhagen has for mottos all men and women over 21 should vote. There should be institutions for the proper bringing up of children. All the communistic and anarchistic labor organizations in Germany, France, Switzerland, Denmark, and England proclaim woman suffrage as a prime factor, and the disruption of the family as its corollary. There are many who remember the visit to this country of the socialist Dr. Avalig and his so-called wife, the daughter of Karl Marx. His legal wife had been left in England, Miss Marks said, in reply to the question of a Chicago lady, that love was the only recognized marriage in socialism. Consequently, no bonds of any kind would be required. Divorces would be impossible, for when love ceased, separation would naturally ensue. At a meeting of the Woman's Council held in Washington in 1888, Mrs. Stanton said, i have often said to men of the present day that the next generation of women will not stand arguing with you as patiently as we have for half a century the organizations of labor all over the country are holding out their hands to women The time is not far distant, when if men do not do justice to women, the women will strike hands with labor, with socialists, with anarchists, and you will have the scenes of the Revolution of France acted over again in this republic. Mrs. Stanton Blatch, daughter of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, in her lecture in this country two years ago on the Economic Emancipation of Women, said that she rejoiced in every cooperative working woman's dwelling because it was a blow aimed at the isolated home and she has just repeated in new york her proposition for the institutional care of children alice Heinemann rhine in her article on woman's work in america says of socialistic labor it aims to benefit woman by recognizing her as a perfect equal of man politically and socially, by fixing woman's means of support by the state so as to render her independent of man. Freedom, a radical socialistic newspaper published in Chicago, where Emma Goldman and her ilk have revealed the true inwardness of such movements, recommends as the first step equal rights for all without distinction of race or sex, and the abolition of class rule. Our most radical socialistic labor national convention in New York this year had four woman delegates. The Knights of Labor, who first put equal pay for equal work into their platform, appeared in their late convention under the lead of Sovereign, who declared that Governor Altgeld was one of the finest types of American manhood today they seem to be drifting towards that phase of socialism to which alice heinemann Ryan referred there are no greater tyrants than some of the labor organizations and one evidence of this is the fact that they prevent the colored man from doing any work outside of a few of the least noble occupations With such edged tools as these are our American women playing when they demand, in the name of democracy, in the name of the family, in the name of the working woman, that the word sex shall be inserted into the United States Constitution, and the word male be stricken from every state constitution that now contains it. End of section 14. Recording by Jennifer Henry.